We are I. Good morning, everybody. You know, welcome to another edition of We Are I. We're sitting down with Daniel today, and uh, I know everybody's kind of heard me, you know, reference to this podcast with Daniel today and how excited I am to be able to, to host this interview today, um, just because everybody in my life knows and a, a bunch of listeners of We Are I know that obviously I'm I'm big into foraging for mushrooms, but I know nothing about it, and I constantly question, you know, like, you know, what I'm seeing, you know, whether or not, you know, I should or shouldn't eat anything, like how you'd be able to prepare these, um, and it mushroom guy that I got from Mountain Equipment Co-op um, is actually like Daniel's the one who who wrote it who designed it and who came up with it and it's something that's in my day pack and in uh, my overnight pack just so that you know I have a reference guide to go back to and that's how I found Daniel in the first place so uh, Daniel welcome to the show Oh, thank you for having me. No problem. Um, again, we were just talking a little bit before we started recording here about, you know, like why and how, you know, you got into this environment, this landscape, because obviously foraging for mushrooms is a pretty unique niche. So um, if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving us a little bit of insight into, you know, like how and why this started in the first place. Well, it depends where you are um, thinking of it as a unique niche. There is plenty of places around the globe where people are really into mushrooms. And yes, part of British heritage is fungophobia, the fear of mushrooms. And so, yes, it seems like a totally eccentric, crazy niche uh, in any culture, you know, with British heritage, which is a great pity because the Brits are really the exception in Europe. There is so many fungophile cultures cultures that love their mushrooms and they're crazy about the mushrooms and of course you know we all know about the Italians and their porcini but you know all the Slavic countries are totally crazy about the mushrooms the French the Germans uh, Scandinavia you know uh, parts of Spain and, and the Brits I don't know what's wrong with them you know one theory is that they were just uh spoiled by not having enough civil wars that forced people being reliant on secondary food, food sources like, you know, mushrooms, which uh, in continental Europe, people uh, killing each other all the time over whatever, for whatever reason, uh, and then commoners had to survive. And the mushrooms in the forest were a big part of that. But I mean... There's so many mushrooms that are so much better than survival food. And yes, there's hundreds of species you can eat to survive. But, you know, there's dozens of species that are just incredible, tasty and and uh, healthy and nutritious and everything. So, you know, mushroom hunting is, is seems just way more exotic in, in, in North America. Uh, South America as well. The Spaniards did not export any of the, the mushroom love you find, would find in certain parts of Spain. And But you go to Asia and, and so many uh, places know their mushrooms, love their mushrooms. Indians are not really into mushrooms. There is another uh, culture that is not connected to their mushrooms, though there's the people who talk about Soma, the 
substance that gave wisdoms to humans in the in the ancient Hindu myth, and some people want to point to Amanita muscaria, the fly agaric, as being soma. But I have my doubts. I mean, I want to believe the story, but if a culture is not in touch with the mushrooms, why would a mushroom be the source of their wisdom in the first place? So, um, you know, you look in. In the Americas, the area that loves their mushrooms the most is Central America. And I would think it's not a coincidence that also there is a traditional use of sacred mushrooms. So if you have that kind of ritualistic sacred connections uh, to mushrooms, then eating other mushrooms uh, doesn't seem like uh, that big a gamble. So it's... It's really interesting, the patterns around the world. And I just grew up in a family that went mushroom hunting. And, you know, we never did a swap print. And, uh, you know, maybe it was a dozen mushrooms uh, my parents would know and pick. And I learned from them. And, yes, we know there is deadly mushrooms around. You know, the, the death cap is uh, – I grew up in, in, in Germany, in Bavaria. And, yes, there's death caps around. But, you know, it's – when, when, when you're familiar, when you grow up with mushrooms as a normal thing, it's like picking blackberries, you know? Nobody takes a class for blackberry picking, right? But there's deadly berries. How can you dare eat blackberries? People think you're crazy when you argue like that. But with mushrooms, oh no, my goodness, you better take a class. And But, you know, with chanterelle, you know, chanterelle, you don't worry about a thousand other mushrooms. You got to know the one you eat and you pick. You don't need to know all the others. And then, of course, with certain mushrooms, you better know if there's lookalikes or not. But, you know, a good field guide will tell you if it's dangerous to pick a certain mushrooms, if there's dangerous lookalikes, or if this is an easy, safe mushroom. And luckily, a lot of our choice edible mushrooms like morels, kingbleeds, chanterelles, uh, lion's mane, cauliflower mushroom, uh, sulfur shelf, many of them are, are really uh, unique and easy to identify. It's not rocket science. Um, but, you know, you don't start eating every mushroom because that mushroom is so cool. You know, and I guess that, like, that's a good point, you know, like where, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, like in, in Western culture, and especially like in, in North America, where we're, we're indoctrinated to believe, you know, and I think a lot of it probably has to come down, you know, like with us here, you know, with like magic mushrooms and like everything's poisonous and it's going to kill you. And like we were just really steered away from it. So like now there's this fear, unless if you see mushrooms in a grocery store, like you shouldn't even consider picking them or eating them. And, you know, like you also brought up a really good point because this is I think where I got lost on this is that I wanted to be able to identify everything that I see so that I don't pick the wrong ones instead of just focusing on like identifying the ones that like I should be picking you know in my area because that simplifies things exponentially there's these people who regard themselves as great mushroom pickers and they pick for 50 years three types of mushrooms and they're happy and it's perfectly safe practice you know I mean it, it depends what type of a person you are if, if, if you're driven by curiosity and you want more 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 yes there's a lot to learn and there's no end actually to learning about mushrooms it's it's uh, there's a lot of difficult mushrooms out there there's a lot of little details the seasonality you know that you cannot see certain mushrooms don't even show every year they show maybe every five years every ten years and 
But, you know, that's a problem of a taxonomist or mycologist that you want to know all these things. Um, but, or anybody who's obsessed with mushrooms, many of the people who are obsessed to that degree are not professional um, mycologists. But um, if you want to eat mushrooms or you want to collect a couple of medicinal mushrooms, you just got to be sure about that mushroom. And... Uh, you know, it's just like people. You, you want to get in touch with one person, you, you figure that person out, you know. You, you do your due diligence and you don't worry about the whole rest. But maybe looking a little bit in the family background is not too bad either, you know. And the friends of that person will tell you something too. The same with mushrooms, you know. When you know a mushroom is in a certain family and then, okay, that family is known to have no mushroom that causes causes organ failure, that's great news, right? Um, if you know like there's these really good edible Amanita mushrooms, but you also know Amanita has deadly mushrooms in the same genus, well, you know, that's not something to play around with. you got to be 100% sure what you do because it's not worth the risk. I mean, you're not starving, you know. Uh, our problem is we have too, too many choices, too much food. So, um... You know, so there's a little knowledge uh, necessary, and every field guide will tell you. Many of the field guides tell you just stay away from Amanita, you know, which works fine. Which, uh, you know, maybe bad example is like stay away from drugs, and you know, they feed you wrong information. And part of it, yes, is true, but part of it, you figure out at some point, wait a minute, they told me this would happen, that would happen, and that's not the truth. So, uh, you know, everybody at their level and, and there's very safe rules, general rules that, that um, once you know a little bit more, you easily can ignore because you have more knowledge. But in the beginning, uh, it protects you. Interesting thing is in, in, in all the traditional society, I don't know in all, but many traditional society, you run into two categories of mushrooms, edible and poisonous. And in the beginning, it totally confused me when in, in Tibet or in Bhutan, they would tell me this is a poisonous mushroom and I know it's an edible mushroom. So later on, I realized people were saying, when saying this is a poisonous mushroom, a more truthful statement would have been, this is a mushroom we do not eat. Mm -hmm. We don't know if it's edible, therefore we call it poisonous. And then suddenly, okay, that makes now all sense. You know, that they call any mushroom they do not eat, they call poisonous. They, there's not that gray area. This one we eat, these ones uh, we don't care, we don't know, and these ones are poisonous. Yeah. And, you know, in a classic example of that, you know, like for me, like my reference point would be is um, like, you know, seeing like how, you know, like the quote unquote magic mushrooms or whatever are, you know, kind of like always deemed to be in like this poisonous or deadly category, you know, but I've tried them in my life and I know that that's not, you know, like it's like the furthest thing from the truth for me. And now I know everybody has their own like analogy, their own concept and how they want to interpret that. Um, but again, like the, the global point behind that is, is like, you know, we're indoctrinated to think there's only column a and column b but there's a big column c that like this gray area where you know like like people could navigate and operate just depending on 
you know, like what your philosophy is or what your methodology is, because I'm sure a lot of like those mushrooms that have like hallucinogenic effects or anything like that have been used in ceremonies anciently, probably through, you know, course of like hundreds or thousands of years, you know, so it's like, you know, like one of those things that, you know, like I find that because we don't want to educate people now and that's the whole point of why I wanted you to come on the podcast like so people could hear that there's there's so much more to this like than just what meets the eye than just the mushrooms in the grocery store because you made an extremely good point about how you know I didn't even know that mushrooms grew some of them grow annually some of them grow every five years or grow every like 10 years so I'm extremely curious to understand you know like why is that you know like what's the point behind that or you know like how do we even know that or what's the life cycle of mushrooms and you know well, yeah the life cycle of a mushroom is a really esoteric thing and people just without microscopy people could not understand what's going on and it's it's only been this year 50 years that mushrooms are not officially plants anymore so till 1969 they were classified as part of the kingdom of plants and then in 69 they got their own kingdom and mushrooms are actually closer related to animals than they are related to plants and you know they can't turn sunlight into sugars that's only what plants and algae can do so um, there's some fungi who came up which now live as lichens they work together with the bacteria and then the fungi together with the bacteria then photosynthesis is happening the fungus protects the, the bacteria uh, the algae or the cyanobacteria and then they make do the photosynthesis and they provide the sugars for the symbiosis and the mushroom provides uh, the, the outer hull of the algae. But, um, you know, mushrooms, just like animals, feed on other substances. And, and yes, in the part, we, we are the consumers and the mushrooms are the decomposers. But that's a little bit intellectual to me, that separation. I mean, what's the difference if I eat something and produce a digestive product versus a mushroom eaten some wood and producing a, a digestive product, you know. The big difference is <clears throat> we digest on the inside. So animals take food in and, you know, have a digestive tract and mushrooms do not do ha have that. They release the enzymes for digesting to the outside and they break down their food source outside of their system and then they absorb uh, the parts. So a very different approach and of course the mushrooms can't run away and this also these two factors is an indication for the powerful immune system mushrooms have they cannot run away and they digest on the outside so their system is like inside out and mushrooms in the dry state are made out of 30% protein around so lots of protein and everybody feeds on protein you know this is what happens. So mushrooms, there's lots of organisms that would love to feed on the mushrooms. And the only thing the mushrooms have is a really powerful immune system to defend themselves. And that's then what really helps with all the medicinal mushrooms that these powerful immune systems mushrooms have developed, they help and stimulate our immune system. So that would be the connection there. And, um, you made oh, the lifestyle the best image for for a mushroom to simply approach is, is the apple tree now the tree the apple is the mushroom that's all we see right but the tree is underground 
or in wood or wherever there's a food source is that white mesh of mycelium, these fine threads. And these threads are one cell wide. So it's a hollow, it's a tube. And the mushroom body doesn't have a protective skin. Everything is one cell. And they make this network and they go wherever the food is. They grow into the food. And so very different approach to, to a body than, than, than animals have. And the fruiting body, the mushroom itself, is only there to produce the spores. And that's why it doesn't need to show it's not out there all year, every moment. And it's seasonal. So when there's rainy season, when it's wet, when the conditions are right, the mushroom reproduces or produces spores. And so some mushrooms apparently have no problem doing their business underground, whatever they do for five, 10, 20 years, and then suddenly they grow a fruiting body and nobody really has answers yet. It's, it's, it's changing now because with DNA, with um, what's it called, fast throughput DNA or so, uh, they can take a spoon of soil and get DNA of every fungus in there. And they know about half of them by now, um, you know, have DNA reference only for half of the fungi they find in the ground. So now we can see what fungi are in the ground without having to cultivate mycelium or waiting for a fruiting body. And so that's a complete game changer. But, you know, that's only very recent that this, um, I don't know, is it fast or high throughput DNA is possible. And But we'll, we'll learn a lot of that by knowing where are, what types of mushrooms are actually in the soil all the time and when do they fruit because so, yeah. so the actual like the 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 mushrooms themselves like we could be when we're out in nature like walking around hiking nature trail walking like we could actually be walking on thousands of like you know potential mushrooms and like we don't even realize yes i mean the whole soil and that's because we can't see it. the whole soil is full of fungal activity. All the trees, all the plants are connected to fungi. So first, if you go back hundreds of millions of years, you know, there was no plants on land. There was fungi were already on land. And the algae came on land and turned into, developed into plants. And fungi already seemingly gave a hand at this point providing the roots, connecting to the algae. So any tree, any shrub you look out there, they are connected to fungi. And there's different classes of fungi. So the ones we love to eat, like chanterelles and bullets and corals and matsutake, these are called the mycorrhizal. Mycorrhizal, mycoroot, no, mycomushroom, rhizal root. And these root-associated mushrooms basically do most of the work feeding the tree. So there's some figures that say up to 90% of the water uptake of the tree actually first comes through the fungal network and also the nutrients. And then they are handed over by the fungus to the tree and the tree pays back with sugars. And there's a seasonality to it. So 
In the Pacific Northwest, things are a little weird because we have usually, not this year, but usually we have these really dry summers. And while in all the other regions in the Northern Hemisphere, um, mushroom season often starts in July. July, August, September is peak mushroom season. We have to wait till the rains come, often in October. But when the trees and the shrubs go back, come back to life, like let's say April, May, June, they use all the sugars they have to produce their leaves and to grow wood, the early wood. And then once they went through that energy output, then they share their sugars with the mushrooms and then the mushrooms can fruit. So it's really, life is so much more complex than it seems and it's really teamwork. So this whole thing of just surviving the fittest is, is a really narrow understanding what happens. You're not just the fittest by being the meanest and the strongest and, and you know, killing everybody around you. No, you're also the fittest by building up corporations. And with these root-associated fungi, it's not just that they work with one mushroom. The trees work with a whole bunch of different mushrooms. So there can be 50 different mushroom species that are on the roots of a tree. And people looked into that and the tree will pay back in sugars in relation to how much nutrients and water the fungus provide, provides. So somebody had the idea, ooh, we can study a non-human economy because there's clearly a quid pro quo happening. How much did you give me? Oh, I give you that much. Oh, you've been really supportive. You're getting some extra. And so... And it's like was, nature's was even, bartering system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and what's even crazier is that in... And there was, I think, uh, Susan Simar in her name. She's, she's a professor at UBC. And she figured out that, that the big trees in the old growth forest... Their nutrient production supports all kinds of little trees in the forest. Like often you have these hemlocks that are growing there for 200 years. They're maybe 30 feet tall and they're just hanging out there. And it's like, you know, they can't get to the light. But so she had the idea of putting plastic, black plastic over one of these trees. And that thing survived for three months without a little bit of sunshine. Now, do try that. don't try that with any of your house plants, you know. Two weeks, no sunlight, and they might be dead already. So what happened is that this tree is being kept alive by the ecosystem. If the big trees come down, there's the next generation. And the fungus seems to be the manager of all of that. So they take the nutrients from the old trees, feed little trees, keep little trees, ready to take off if the big trees come down. And this is not just from hemlock to hemlock. This can be from Douglas fir, fir um, to all kinds of other species. So, so, so arguably, like, what you're saying is, but you know, by this vast network of fungus and, like, these, this, these mushrooms that are in the ground, they've, they've almost helped create, like, this network of shared photosynthesis? A shared product of photosynthesis yeah because they can't do the photosynthesis so yeah so the trees make big sugars yeah and these sugars um 
I traded, handed down to the mushrooms. And the, the term was coined the world, uh, the world wide web. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. So, but, but it's just like, but like, this is something, and again, because like, you know, like us as like a species, we're, we're so visually entrenched in that if we see it, it must be there. If we can't see it, it should not exist. You know, but again, I think that's just where we get so lost as human beings because we have to clearly always define things visually. You know, but again, unless if you're willing to make it your life's work and say, well, what happens if, you know, I put this black plastic over this tree and start to slowly peel those onion skins back to be able to understand that? And like, and where does that work in understanding how like there's this cooperative bartering system, you know, via these, you know, these mushrooms that are in the forest and something that like you may never see, like, you know, like arguably depending on like the, the cycles, you could go a lifetime in an area and actually never even see the byproduct of the exchange of this because there's no fruits of these mushrooms coming out of the ground because it could be 15 or 20 or 30 years before you actually see a product yeah it's it's i mean it's really a hidden a hidden kingdom and and you know people in the 17th 18th century when you know already in botany they had quite an understanding they could see seed production i mean everybody knew what seeds were going to deal right because you agriculture relies on using seeds you know and and then mushrooms, it's like the spores are too small. And so somebody had the idea that that powder these mushrooms produce, that these could be the seeds, you know. Um, so it was really, it, it was really the mi- microscopy were the key to understanding mushrooms. And, 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 you know, now even like the nutrients transfer is by, by marking nutrients radioactively that you can say, oh, this sugar, which, you know, was in that tree in that leaf we can see how it traveled all the way over through that mushroom to another plant and I mean you know uh, maybe you know you can get in a state of mind on enough mushrooms where you could have that inside too but uh, to, to have a clear proof you need very advanced methodology and you need people who really think about that deeply and come up with with a way to to understand that and uh, you know i mean we, we are just for our convenience we we just like to perceive plants as stupid and plants as having no no consciousness and and that's all wrong and i mean that's very sad news for our vegetarian friends um but you know there there is awareness in plants too and yes it is different you know, we can we have an easier time relating to animals since we're animals um, to then relating to plants. But there's so much research that show how how plants communicate, how they make a distinction between closely related and not closely related, even the same species. You know, if you are family, I'll share my nutrients with you. Or if you're not family, I'll fight you chemically underground and keep you off my turf. I mean, there's really ego happening, just like in in, in humans, you know, and... um and I think like the the easiest transfer like when when I try to explain that concept to people because you know like like I I run into that quite regularly being in like the industry that I'm in like where where people have developed this mentality that you know being vegan you don't hurt anything you know but 
you know, in like outside, if you just look at like the plant in general, I challenge people. I'm like, if a plant didn't have an awareness, why would it reposition itself to be able to gain the maximum exposure to the sun? Like that's like the probably the most archaic version that you could look at how this plant actually has a consciousness because if it didn't, it would just wither and die. You know, but right. like, I mean, it, 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 each plant is, is, is trying to find its space and make the best of whatever situation there's a lot of intelligence there, and yes, um, they're different than we are, you know, but I think slowly, slowly, you know, while we destroy them as if they are nothing, there's some of us who really start understanding um, that we're dealing with a class of being that also has awareness, and they also have a right to be, and it's just our ignorance that allows us to to treat them the way we are we treat them you know and yes and if plants could take over the world a certain species they would do that too that's just unfortunately how we all function you know yeah um they might not call themselves sapiens, but that's a different story. Yeah. You know, and, that, and that's only our classification, right? Like, those are classifications that we've come up with and not, like, the classifications that, like, what, like, n- like nature's dictated rule. Like, you know, like, we yeah. want to say, okay, well, this is what we believe, so this is how the world is going to be. But, like, we have to also always come back to, like, we are the most insignificant part of this planet that we live on. And, like, you know, and again, like, talking to you right now is a classic example of that is, like, there's this network that'll supersede us it has preceded us and it'll supersede our existence on this planet and whether there's 2 billion or 7 billion of us on this planet this network is going to control every single person on that because if this network ever ceased to exist like obviously there's going to be a fundamental destruction of like you know like plant species like globally because this is like the super highway of nutrient exchange yeah, and, and but we are part of that system, and um, you know, we are product of the system, and we are part of the system, and we just got a little out of hand, and we don't really realize our responsibility, and 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 um, you know, because we 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 killing the cow that's feeding us, and and. Uh, it's not easy it's it's a challenge and i think you know i even a supernova is natural you know i mean the sun will blow up someday so there is no sustainable energy management on the sun right it will take its course and if we just behave as we are we'll do our supernova and we can claim it is was natural but that's the whole point that we don't want to we claim to be homo sapiens that we should have the awareness and, and adjust our behavior in a way that we make sure at least minimum is we are surviving and now we have the knowledge that for our survival we need everyone else as well. We, we, need, a, we need functioning ecosystems and diversity is the key to stability and if if, if if we reduce diversity, then ecosystems are way too fragile. And, you know, same for human society. Diversity gives different points of views and not one view suddenly can take over and turn everybody crazy. And uh, 
yeah, of course. I mean, that's. Let's go back to the mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, was going to say, you know, but like you, you make a very valid point, though. Like, you know, like where we back ourselves, like, like into a corner of eliminating like diversity, because, you know, I think like us as like human beings, when we look at things, when we want things to be simple and singular, so they're easy to identify, but then we lose the value and like diversity. You know, and again, like, you know, if that, that can be the segue back into like talking about mushrooms is that we have like, you know, distinctly like one mushrooms like that people are going to find in a grocery store. And even if they go and they see some of the other varieties of mushrooms in the grocery store, even though that they're in this perfectly safe environment, they still seem so foreign, like you shouldn't eat them. But never mind, then you get out in nature and it's just like that you're overwhelmed by this diversity. Then you see, you know, like mushrooms that are purple and black. Then you see ones that are red on the top and yellow and then also now instead of having like um like the gills you know like now they have like a like a porous like texture it looks like a sponge and it's just like oh you get overwhelmed by this you know because we just we want to refuse to be able to enter like diversity like into our life you know like we want to always come back down to the simplest form but again the reason like why you're here is because like you know like i i'm actually a firm believer and you're really starting to like you know like push this more upon me that like that like mushrooms play a lot bigger of a role and like fungus plays a lot bigger of a role in our day-to-day lives and our ecosystems and i think like what we want to are willing to admit are educated on and you know and again just being in a position in western culture where we would value that something outside of us has such a key role you know and like that's where for me like i try to really steer myself down like the road of you know like chinese medicine and ancient chinese medicine and like iravita and you know like these different like methodologies where it's, it's connecting back with nature because I spend so much of my time like in the back country and surrounded in this this environment and the one thing that I, I consistently see that is sparks the most curiosity is like why are these you know like these mushrooms here like why are some growing on these trees you know like why do you know some grow like you know kind of underneath these logs or like why do some of them only grow like skinny and big like like this diversity behind them and you know like where where does that lie like what does this offer us because obviously everything of this earth is you know like has potential benefit to us and like how can i be exploring that to be able to further myself and connect myself with this environment even more, you know, and hence the reason why you're on here right now. Right. So I think the best is just open eyes, look at all these things, you know, you don't need to pick them all, just look at them and, and, you know, you, you see differences and you see beauty in places where you never expected and you get a little bit of handle on the different classes. You open a book and you see, okay, they talk about corals, they talk about the polypores, the conks, the, the, the woody things growing right out of a tree trunk. Um, well, there's all the regular mushrooms, but hey, some grow on the ground and soil and some grow on wood, and that's a big difference. So I mentioned before there's the root-associated mushrooms that grow on the ground, and then there is the saprobic mushrooms that break down biomass, and that's usually what you get in the supermarket unless it's wild-collected mushrooms like the oyster mushrooms that grow on, on wood, you know, in our forest, alder. Alder is where you find oysters, in spring and in fall. And um, we have foliotas, which are not necessarily edible, but there's whole classes of mushrooms that only grow on dead wood. And 
Um, and then there's the whole bunch of mushrooms that grow on decaying leaves and needles, you know, some of them tiny, each needle, a tiny mushroom grows out of it. And the mycenas do that. Or in the leaves, you know, wherever you have a bunch of leaf, decaying leaves, you might find the bluet mushroom, a tasty edible mushroom with the aroma of frozen orange juice. When the smell is really helpful to identify them. And the button mushrooms, like agaricus, uh, I just have growing one out in my driveway in uh, Douglas fir needles under some roadies um, with a great almond smell. So there's these mushrooms that grow on dead biomass, the ones that grow on wood, and they're also probing. And that's the ones we often can cultivate. And then there's the root-associated one, and then they have a third class, which are the parasitic ones, which the, this, uh, this, uh, the difference we make is between the source, the nutrient source being dead or alive. So a parasitic mushroom in, uh, takes over a living organism, but it doesn't have to kill it. But some definitely do others don't. And that's where, for example, cordyceps, these insect parasitizing fungi come in uh, that have lots of very interesting uh, medicinal uh, propensities and they're being totally parasitic. Um, you know, infecting a living organism, killing the organism off, and then uh, growing its fruity body, spreading the spores to infect the next insect. So um, there's these different lifestyles and colors, and it's really so helpful um, taking pictures, you know, for yourself. When you see something that you can look at it again, look it up. Um, there's lots of resources online these days. There's a free download that's called Matchmaker which was first started in Canada um, by uh, Ian in Victoria and, uh, oh, I forgot, drawn a blank. Anyway, so they started this free software you can download, which has, which has thousands of mushroom pictures. And you can, like, easy hit is you find a fly agaric, red mushroom, white dots. And you put in red mushroom, gilt mushrooms, white dots on the cap. You know, there's a there's a table for putting in color of the cap and then boards on the cap and then it will show you the handful of mushrooms that have you look at a couple pictures oh there I have it or it smells like garlic is the easy thing to find in there too if it's a white mushroom with gills and there's a hundred of them it's a little harder to find things with the software but um, you know then you can share your mushrooms online on Mushroom Observer iNaturalist upload them uh, you can go on a Facebook, or as I like to call it, on a fake book page, but you got to be careful. Don't go with the first ID. Somebody just got into mushroom is all excited. Oh, it's yellow. It's got to be a chanterelle. And they will write that on there. And then, you know, you get other people, wait a minute, it's not a chanterelle. So never go with the first ID. Or if you're really desperate to go with the first ID, then double check. What kind of person is that? Is that person really does the person know their mushrooms or is that just somebody who you know spews, spews knowledge that has no no background yet so, so I got, I got a question for you really quick um so say us here in the Pacific Northwest, like when we go out and, you know, like we, we see these mushrooms growing in, like in the forest. I don't know if this is too broad of a question, but um, 
out of all the mushrooms that we would typically find in the Pacific Northwest, like what do you think the percentage of those are that are edible versus like like poisonous, deadly? Like like are are we really gambling? Like when you walk out there and you see these mushrooms, is it like fifty fifty? You know, or is it like you know eighty percent of them are are typically like okay to eat, and like twenty percent of them are are deadly, or or is it too hard I to even? I think generate? seventy thirty eighty twenty regard edible poisonous would be, uh, you know, but. You have a whole bunch in this 70%. You have a whole bunch that are bitter, slimy, too small, uh, whatever, disgusting, taste, um, awful consistency. So uh, I like, I think the best to visualize is a bell curve. Yeah. And on one side, you have deadly poisonous mushrooms, which maybe we have a dozen in the Pacific Northwest. And yes, there could be a few more, nobody ever tried. But Deadly mushrooms, there's very few deadly mushrooms out here. Um, it is changing in an urban environment because the death cap is coming in. You might have seen the articles on, on Vancouver and, and uh, I'm sure same in Victoria and Seattle. Also, we have death caps popping up. Um, but uh, it is very few deadly mushrooms. But then, you know, you don't just deal with a dozens of deadly mushrooms but you I'm sure you deal easily with several hundreds of mushrooms that uh, get you uh, really sweating and some of them literally um, they will you will produce uh, liquid out of in every orifice and feel really bad that's the muscarin which you would find in the fiber caps which there's at least I would guess 30-40 species that might have this toxin um and that could kill little kids, but not grown-ups. So, you know, there, there's a whole range of stuff that that um, that doesn't cause organ failure, but makes us really miserable. Yeah. So, in the end, it's really, you you got to know the one mushroom you eat, and um, that's, it's not rocket science, because you really can... Uh, focus on each year you can learn one or two mushrooms you know and then you can see how quickly you build up quite a repertoire and at some point some people just "Ah, screw that nothing is as good as a handful of everybody uh, knows them you know like the the, the beliefs the king beliefs and a few others and the chanterelles and the morels and and, and so on and they say yeah well I tried this I tried that and and, uh, what's the point and um you know, and I, I, I always want to find more, learn more, whatever level. And, and, and ability is definitely one thing. And, and and I do a lot of travel and for mushrooms. And then I'm confronted with different mushrooms, different cultures. And suddenly they eat a mushroom where we say, mm, why would you eat that? And for them, this is a great mushroom. And sometimes it could be, even if still classified as the same species or closely related, but there's often local differences between mushroom taste. And with DNA, a lot of these things will get their own species names. But also people have different tastes and different ways to prepare it. Like I was just in Bhutan and there people boil a lot of mushrooms. And boiling mushrooms doesn't make them softer. Actually, the cell will release water and gets a little bit more firm from boiling. And a lot of toxins can be neutralized with boiling. So I met a guy there who said, oh, well, you know, if I don't know a mushroom, I just boil it before I eat it. 
It's like, you eat mushrooms you don't know? This is crazy. And I was like, wow. And he's in his 70s. And well, it turned out he had another rule. His other rule was I never eat a mushroom with a ring. So a little ring, an annulus around the stem. And that actually takes out a lot of the deadly candidates. So apparently his approach, you know, boiling everything if he doesn't know or uh, not eating anything with a ring. um, It's like a little ring that almost kind of looks like a skirt or a donut or like, you know, anything like that. I'm like, those are typically... you got to be, as soon as there's a ring on a mushroom you could say you gotta be a bit way more careful because like the death cat has rings, our uh, little uh, Gellerinas, the um, skull cup, Kenneth has a faint ring. Um, there's all kinds of things. Uh, Deadly Lepiotas have a ring, but you know, nobody approaches it this way here. I never heard anybody saying that I recall, you know, just don't eat anything with a ring. And because that also eliminates like Matsutake have a bit of a ring or the shaggy parasols have a ring and these are you know super tasty mushroom but when you come from a from a point of view you know I eat things I don't know about then that's that's a good filter I still wouldn't do it you know but it's just blew my mind somebody living by oh yeah if I don't know it I just boil it and footnote I don't need anything with a Right. Yeah. You know, and you know, even like great information for like you know people who are just getting like into like an introduction of like you know mushroom foraging and you know and picking is that you know it can be something as simple as that. Just like watch out for the ones with rings until you can identify them better because that's going to eliminate a lot of like the dangerous ones that you like you shouldn't be eating. You know, like yes, we're just kind of like little... it's definitely something to it, but I, I think it's really focus on on the handful of easy good ones. Yeah. And like there's, there's mycological societies. Vancouver has one, Victoria has one, Bellingham. I mean, they're up and down here in the Pacific Northwest. Every every city and also small uh, towns do have uh, mushroom clubs or mycological societies. You go out online, you find like there's uh, mushroom groups uh, of the Pacific Northwest or so. And if, if you know, find some people and learn from someone else, learn your chanterelles, learn a handful of easy edibles, and that makes all the difference, you know, because, I mean, yes, identifying by image is, that's what we evolutionary selected for. I mean, we are so eyesight, right? But some things, uh, eyesight alone is, is not good enough. It's really helpful if you have smell, uh, if you, you know, I always smell my mushrooms, Odor can really help me identify them. Um, consistency, you know, taste. You can taste any mushroom as long as you spit out. And that sometimes right away in the forest eliminates any ideas about an edible mushroom when you taste something. And this is like, this is awfully bitter or this is totally spicy. This is, you know, yuckily metallic or whatever. And then, you know, while you're always maybe cooking neutralizes that aroma but um, tasting is a great thing mushrooms communicate through chemicals so odor and taste is how they talk to each other and um, a lot of this is can be uh, learned by 
by going by odor and taste. And the key thing is you've got to spit out, no swallowing, right? See, that's a, that's a great tip. And, like, these are the things that I wanted to harvest out of your mind today was, like, you know, like, how, like, what are those things? Because they're, they're rich. Like, that's rich information. Like, because when I look at these mushrooms, I'm like – like is like like because I have this perplexity to them. I'm like if I feel like if I touch them in their in their poisonous that that poison's going to get on my hands. You know, like because we're indoctrinated with that misinformation. Yeah. And like now I know I'm like well I can grab any mushroom out. I can chew it up a little bit if it tastes terrible. Just spit it out. Or if I don't know spit it out. Like that just opens up my mind exponentially when I'm in the back country being like yeah. at least like at a minimum my exploration can be like you know isolated to tasting all them and just understanding it from that point of view too because um, which also like you know brings me into like a, another uh, aspect of this I wanted to talk about was that is there a preferred way of like like cooking like or preparing mushrooms in general like are they better eaten raw like should we eat them raw is the bioavailability of the nutrients like higher when we eat them raw or should we okay. steam them or cook them uh, let me first uh, so you can touch any mushroom it won't poison you just like holding hands it's not gonna get anybody pregnant okay? <laughs> it's that simple to, to poison yourself you need actual fungal material in your system mm. so and that's the point you can taste them as long as you spit out but tasting will not tell you like deadly amanitas like the death cat doesn't have a bad taste it has an agreeable fungal taste oh. it's mild it's fungal. The taste will not tell you I am deadly. So that's really a big limitation there. Um, like the bitter bolides, when we look at for king bolides, we run into these bitter bolides that look very similar for a beginner. But you taste just a tiny bit and you get that bitterness right away. And you know, oh, a bitter bolide. And then you know, okay, bitter bolide, Pacific Northwest, we are down to two or three options which mushroom I should be having here. So really helpful. And, okay, so don't worry about, um, even in your basket, if you collect and you have some poisonous mushrooms next to some edible mushrooms, in my world, it's not a risk. The risk happens if you happen to eat them, you know. And when you process your mushrooms, when you bring them home, processing them yourself gives you another step in, in safety because you can feel wait a minute this feels different when I cut this mushroom you know the difference in consistency between like the Matsutake has these deadly lookalikes or extremely poisonous lookalike Amanitas and they grow right next to each other I mean sometimes this can be only 8 inches between the choice edible and the deadly mushroom and they look very similar so Matsutake is really it's all about the odor. You've got to know the odor of Matsutake. And then the another safety thing is they're really firm. Like you try to squish it between your fingers, you cannot. But these really poisonous amanitas that can grow right next to it, you push two fingers together and it will break their stem. Now the Matsutake smells as a very unique cinnamon spicy odor, but the amanita can have a bleachy smell, a really pungent bleach smell, especially in its stem base. So some people, oh yes, this is a strong odor. That gotta be the Matsutake. Now you gotta know which odor, not just, you know, an intense 
odor. Anything that smells like bleach is not edible, right? I mean, chemical, often there's, there's a whole bunch of uh, poisonous mushrooms that have a chemical disturbing odor, and um, I don't know any of them that we would eat. But of course, uh, Europeans, when they first smelled matsutake in Sweden, they thought disgusting, and they called it amylaria nauseosa, that makes you nauseous. Yeah. And they were sitting on it for 80, 90 years with that name, and then they realized that they have matsutake in Sweden, and it's actually the same DNA as the one in Japan, and then they started exporting it to Japan. But because that odor was not something appreciated, nobody bothered about that much. Oh, okay, wow. cooking, eating. I got, I got one question yeah. first, though, when it, when it comes down to this. So, like, one thing that I see in abundance all the time, and I've wanted to eat them, but I researched them, and they said they taste terrible. Now, let me get European. The, the ones that are a black and purple. Black and purple. Like we have them up here everywhere. When I'm in the back country, it's kind of like it's got a black cap and it kind of fades off into a really dark purple. Um, it's got kind of like a, like a purple uh, stem to it. And um, all the research that I've I've come across said that they um, they taste like cigarette butts if you eat them. Like they have a really bad like you know like like taste to them. Uh, but they're everywhere when I'm in the back country. Well, so purple, there's purple cordinarias. There's um, a lot of purples in the cordinarias, but the black and the purple confuses me. There's purple, very dark purple russulas. So, but you say the stem is also dark. Yeah, maybe what I'll is do is I'll... Mushroom? What's that, sorry? Is it a gilt mushroom? Yes, it is, yeah. And how big? Um, well, they can get quite big, like the, you know, maybe, you know, um, like they could be about, you know, like, like, you know, index finger to, you know, thumb, like all I've, I've seen them like quite big, almost like the size of like a, like a softball, um, not very ever high up off the ground, you know, very like a shorter stem, but like the cap can be quite big. Um, and do they have a rounded ca- a concave yeah. or convex cave? Uh, Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. It's really hard just to descriptive yeah. and, and images make such a difference. Um, so I'll, I'll take a picture and I'll send you, cause I'm actually going into the, into the back country again this weekend. And, uh, like, like I said, like they're in abundance and stuff. So I would love to be able to know, um, you know, kind of like, or maybe I'll, if I have a picture of one already, cause I take pictures of mushrooms all the time, I'll, yeah. I'll send it to you and stuff and you can let me know. Yeah, that's much easier than description. I mean, you know, the purple is the lepiota, uh, not lepiota, uh, lepista, the bluet, and there's the cordinarius. We have these, these black chanterelles, but they definitely don't look that way. And, uh, yeah, lots of cordinarius, which the, the one cordinarius violaceous, uh, a purple, and it's, it's a little hairy purple. Um, like velvety purple cap that's edible but it turns black when you cook it and so when something when you're clear in your ID you know you have no doubt and just somebody says it's edible but it tastes awful I mean you're not if you if you're sure what you have you know we just fry it up and, and, and taste a little bit and also when you fry up a, a mushroom so eating Many of our edible mushrooms are not edible when raw. 
You know, they even take it to extremes, especially like in Northern Europe, in Finland, there is the Chiromitra, um, the one of the, the spring morels or false morels, and it's actually deadly when not cooked. So, but once you cook it, it has volatile toxins, which happen to be um, uh, cancer agents too. It's um, rocket fuel, uh, hydra, um, drawing a blank here. Anyways, um, you know, and for people there, it's perfectly fine um, to monomethyl hydrocin is the toxin. And they, well, yeah, we know, but you know how to prepare it, no problem. So, you know, you can decide for yourself, no problem or not. And of course, in a field guide, it usually says, don't eat it, you know, because raw, it's poisonous. And even in the in, in pre- preparing it, you're releasing toxins, which you don't want to inhale. So our regular morels are toxic raw. You need to cook them. And the shaggy parasols, which are really nice in suburbia everywhere, uh, they are also... Uh, um, supposedly toxic raw. I have never tried it, but kingbolids, many people can eat raw. Um, agaricus, the button mushroom or the prince, people can often eat raw. People eat matsutake raw too. But like shiitake, you eat in shiitake raw, you get skin problems. Or no. a subset of people get like streaks on their skin eating shiitake raw, which doesn't grow in the forest, but you know, you can, you can find it in a supermarket. Really tasty, good, and also very medicinal mushrooms. So what about the the roll. one? I think that you might even have a picture of it behind you. If it, but it has kind of like a like a reddish cap on it, with like a, almost like a little bit uh, yellow around like the edges. And when you flip it upside down, it's not doesn't have gills. It's kind of more like like spongy. Yeah, that's that's a type of a belief. Then yeah, can you eat those or and can you eat them raw? <laughs> um. So the king the king bullet you can eat raw. But there's other bullets, especially the ones that are turning blue, they need cooking. Okay. You need to neutralize a whole bunch of um, of, uh, of toxins. So, uh, in general, cooking mushrooms, a lot of poisonous mushrooms get rendered edible by cooking them. And um, so, it's not a good idea eating mushrooms raw. In addition, so mushrooms are mostly made out of chitin. And chitin is a really tough um, sugar, but a, a, a really big sugar. So it's a very complex, tough structure, and to break it down is difficult. And the most famous place where we know chitin is the exoskeleton of insects. You know, this really tough shell oh. of insects, it's made out of chitin. So mushrooms... They don't concentrate the chitin like an insect, right? But chitin is hard to break down. And there's an enzyme that does that chitinase, but not everybody has that supposedly. And cooking your mushrooms will soften up the chitin. And also cooking will help you to get the nutrients out. So eating raw mushrooms, you will get way less uh, nutritious nutrition out of a mushroom than when you cook it. So it's, it's one of these things where overcooking is not a crime. Like with our vegetables, often overcooking, you know, we, we kill a lot of things, but for the mushrooms, 
uh, we make we make the nutrients available to our systems by cooking them well. Now, and like, would you would you saute them? Would you boil them? I know the one gentleman said that you know he just out of like reassurance he boils them, but I wouldn't assume that would be the preferred cooking method. Like, you know, is it like you'll get it in the frying pan, saute it down? You're like, like how what what how would you prepare them? Or like, what do you think is like the best kind of like like across the board to be able to release the nutrients, neutralize the toxins? Well, that's, there is certain mushrooms you have to boil to render them edible, but most of these mushrooms nobody eats yet. So uh, in spring, I never get that straight, spring and false morel, which is which. So the workers, um, there's people who say you should not eat any workers without parboiling them, like 10 minutes, and then you throw the water away and then you fry them. And, um, but... I, I think it's a totally redundant practice and there's not already that much taste in these workers, which happen when the cottonwoods flower the same time when you get that odor of the cottonwoods, you have the workers growing around cottonwoods. Um, so I don't, I don't parboil them. It's a lot of things with mushroom you have to find out for yourself. Like people get allergies, have reactions to mushrooms and since it's still a minority that eats all kinds of wild mushrooms. We don't have the statistics out. So in a field guide, it would often say eat with caution, meaning there's a subset of people that gets a reaction to it. That wouldn't be a deadly reaction or anything like that, but an upset digestive system, you know? So, um, so that's why in field guide often eat, eat with caution and, and undercooking is, uh, you know, can I've, I've had moments where I undercooked mushrooms and I regretted that badly, you know. Uh, it didn't hurt me, but it scared me. And um, uh, so... What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you when you when you've ate mushrooms and it maybe like you misidentified or didn't cook long enough or like what what because you just kind of like alluded to like it scared you a little bit but I'm I'm super interested to know the story oh, yeah, behind right. that. No, it's a good experience. You know, I was um, how old was I? Maybe twenty seven or so, and I just uh, taught a younger guy about uh, parasol mushrooms, and he was totally excited, and then. Uh, you kept pushing, pushing, let's eat some other stuff, you know, and I, so we, um, I ate some, you know, I had a field guide and picked some other stuff, but I wasn't very well uh, trained in, in using field guides at that point, you know, it was always the same one book, I looked up stuff growing up, and, um, and anyways, so then one night I, I got, after eating some mushroom, you know, I ended up having, having the runs and so on. It didn't help that I stayed in a in a chalet that didn't have a bathroom in there, <laughs> and um, and you know I got scared, and um, I realized how I was a fool listening to a guy who had no ideas about mushrooms, and by his eagerness being being pushed to try things uh, out of my comfort zone, and I probably had identified it right, but it I found in another field guide uh, that it said you know only young. Uh, young uh, mushrooms, the older one can upset your stomach and so, uh, or your digestive system. One time I got really scared. I was at an event of the uh, Mycological Society of San Francisco at an outing and they served eight kinds of 
wild mushrooms and six of them I never eaten before and um, there was some stuff you know um, one of them or two of them being amanitas and the kokora and the next day I suddenly you know feel really sick and and uh, and the deadly amanitas it can take eight to twelve hours to kick in or it takes that long for them so you don't know and so I was uh, that morning I was a little nervous and it's like shit what happened did I uh, you know they feed me a poisonous mushroom it wasn't me who checked them you know and of course they should not but I was worried for a while and then thinking what am I gonna do and you know being the US where you don't want to go to a hospital without a reason because I mean in most civilized countries in the world you can just deal with a mushroom poisoning and don't worry about the economic impact but um, of course that's not uh, happening in this glorious country where uh, healthcare is a luxury and um, anyway so then the friends I stayed with at some point said after I went through that mentally for a while they said Oh, you probably just have that stomach flu. We were just getting over when you arrived three days ago. That was the answer. So, oh. um, I, I ended up throwing up after eating truffles, you know, and it shouldn't happen. And it was uh, black truffles and um, they had some secondary fungus going there, but I thought I had cut it all nicely away and... But, um, but so, and I guess like the takeaway from that is, is like, obviously you've been around mushrooms, like, you know, like you said, like from a kid, you know, all the way up to like, you know, present day and like, it doesn't really sound like anything is being like that bad. Like, obviously you're extremely well educated, but there was probably a point where you didn't have as much education as what you well, do now. You probably could come up with the same stories about food poisoning and then yeah. ask you about alcohol. It's a whole different stuff. No, I mean, you know, some people think I'm reckless and because I try things they wouldn't try and I would never try anything. I don't have information about at least two or three other people having tried it before. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I love my life. I have, uh, I love my family. There's nothing really that I want to terminate this existence here. And, uh, there's only very few mushrooms where you gamble. And it's it's really like this Amanita thing is because they're such great edible mushrooms, some of them, um, especially, you know, when I go over to Tibet and Bhutan, uh, this, the Himalayan Caesar mushroom, it's just so tasty. But, you know, it's enjoying mushrooms and then feeding it to 10 or 15 other people and knowing it's all resting on my ID skills, you know. But, you know, I know the mushroom, but there's still moments I'm nervous, you know. And um, so when you eat a new mushroom, new mushroom, don't eat too much, eat a little bit. Eat it in the morning or for lunch, you know. Dinner and, and, and also alcohol can sometimes complicate things. But lunch or breakfast, much better. If you feel a little odd afterwards while well, you're busy, you're not laying in bed and suddenly you're getting on this whole mental trip. Oh, am I killing myself? Just because, you know, your, your bowels are a little upset. So eat a little. And often the thing is with mushrooms where it says these are not easy mushrooms, bring them home, look them up, and don't eat them for a while. You know, till you know them. It's, it's, it's a little bit just like with people. You get to know them slowly, you know? it's much safer than rushing to things. So, um, and, and mushrooms are like people. You need, you cannot generalize. You need to know 
them individually and when I say individually for mushrooms I mean the species you know you gotta there is no generalization there is no shortcut there is no well anything that stains blue or everything that grows on wood there's no trick you gotta know your mushroom and that's why when you come don't over challenge by the thousands of mushrooms we have you know I mean there's four, five, eight thousand mushrooms out here in the Pacific Northwest, but you don't run into all of them. Whenever we do like a foray out in the woods and we collect mushrooms, or we have these shows in the mushroom clubs, we often, we have like 150, 250 mushrooms. So, you know, and if you have a hundred people who pick everything, maybe you get up to 400 or 500 mushrooms, and that includes a lot of tiny things. So, if you say thousands, uh, you don't find it in one spot. But the point is, you know the mushroom you eat. Like you, in the beginning, get to know your chanterelles, you know. Get to know, if you live in suburbia, figure out shaggy parasols, birch bullets. Whenever there's a birch tree, there will be birch bullets. Really easy, because you can recognize a birch tree easy. Then you find a, a bullet, a sponge mushroom with a brown cap around it. Well, there got to be a birch bully. And then you look it up and you read about it, you compare. And if you read a description, there should be no contradiction. You know, if it says it grows on the ground and suddenly you find it on wood, no, you, you can't ignore it, you know. So, um, but then you can, if, if, you, if, if you don't understand the terminology, which, yes, there is still terminology I have no clue about. I got to look up. There's so much terminology. You know, um, images is so much easier to work with, but you got to train your eye. You know, it's just like um, there's foolish people who say, well, the Chinese look all the same. The only statement they make in is, I never bothered to look. And, and you know, and then once you look, you see, no, there's just a bandwidth of, of faces as is with any other group of people. So um, with the mushrooms, you keep looking, you know, you keep taking pictures and, and and smelling, tasting. And then you really, even if you don't have the names, you can recognize a mushroom without having a name. I'm familiar with this thing. Yeah, I can't put a name on it, but I've seen that before. That works for you, you know. The, 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 the bottom line is, will I eat it or not? And that's something where... You know, you, you don't have the liberty just to eat because it looks cool. You can only eat if you know it. And, of course, we are very grateful if people eat mushrooms nobody else eats. Please keep good records. Make sure you have health insurance. And, 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 and don't eat it all so that people who try to help you when you're in a hospital, they see the mushroom and know. But, so I'm, 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 I'm being a little facetious here, right? Yeah. Do not eat mushrooms you don't know. Um, but yes, it's, it's, it can be a great game for science if you eat mushrooms nobody else eats. But when you when you go out and you or, you know say somebody's like you know foraging for these these mushroom stuff, when you get them back home, like what's the best way to be able to keep them? It, like, is it in the brown paper bag that you get from the grocery store? Is there like a that's that's the best what we have here, the paper bag. So the mushrooms are in ninety percent water the regular edible mushrooms, right? So um, if you just keep them in a closed plastic bag, they will evaporate, they will breathe out water, 
and then they sit in their own juice and overnight it will turn into a liquid mess. Now, if you pick dry mushroom because it hasn't rained in two weeks, that's not a risk. But if it's a typical Pacific Northwest mushroom season, your mushrooms are wet, do not keep them in plastic bags. You can collect them in plastic bags, but as soon as you close it up and you leave it for many hours, you ruin them all. So, paper bags are great. You also want to check, like when you pick mushrooms that have a lot of worms, luckily our chanterelles have no worms, right? And also our like shaggy parasols have no worms, but like you're picking kingbullets in the mountains. Um, when you get home, the first thing you want to do is cut it in half because on the outside they can look pretty fine, but you don't know what's happening on the inside. And when you cut them in half, you can see if you have a perfect one without any worms or if this is already, you know, uh, a total maggot habit. And, you know, I don't mind eating a few of them, but I don't want to, uh, you know, it's not a topping on your salad that you want to be able yeah, to... Yeah, right. You don't want them crawl around. So yeah. then you separate the ones that have a lot of maggots. You cut away the parts or you throw them out. And if you throw them out, um, if you know, like, true first spruce, like for the king bullets or oaks, you put them under trees where they might grow in future. So, um, but anyways, so you, you already... You want to pick your mushrooms as clean as you can in the forest. Like I have my, my mushroom knife. Um, you can also get from my webpage, mushrooming.com, which has a little brush on the end. So that brush, <clears throat> you know, you clean your mushroom right away. You cut off the, the end of the mushroom and there's people who turn and people who pull and we have no signs for this better. But the point is, the cleaner you pick your mushrooms, the less work you have at home. Now you go out at, at 6.30 and it's about to get dark, don't waste your time cleaning, but uh, otherwise you make so much more work for yourself by picking dirty mushrooms that then get the dirt under the gills or everywhere. So pick as clean as you can, bring them home, look what you have, separate. You, you shouldn't pick the old ones, you should leave them out in the woods, but if you have some that are questionable, you know, get them out. Paper bags is great. Cooking them, you can keep them much longer than when you keep them fresh. I mean, chanterelles are incredible. They, you can keep chanterelles for weeks in the fridge, in paper bags. Maybe you you uh, miss them a little bit after a week if they get too dry. But they are really exceptional, and that's also why they are so sought after in trade because chanterelles are just uh, quite industrial. Industri they last much longer than any other mushroom. And um, king bullets are very finicky. Morels, um, you can so easily dry. Um, and uh, there's different types. Some last longer than others. But it's all things you figure out. Um, but like bullets and morels, I do dry. I slice and dry. Um, but many others like chanterelles, so much better cooking and freezing. Okay. And if you, if you have a whole bunch of them, and it's more than you want to cook up. You just put them on a tray in the oven till they sweat. Maybe 20 minutes, you know, high temperature, no problem. Until, or 10 minutes till they release their water. And then you take them out of the oven, let them cool off, and then you can freeze them. At what temperature would you, would you put them in the oven? What temperature would your oven be at? I don't know. Like 350, 450, doesn't really matter. You know, okay. um, the lower the temperature, the longer it will take. And um, they're not going to burn because there's so much water in there. 
and then once they sweat, once they let the water out, then you can take them out of the oven and then you can freeze them. And then the thing is you freeze raw chanterelles, they will turn bitter, many of them. Um, some not, but others do, and that really ruins it completely. And, um, and then when it's very wet, when I fry my mushrooms, I don't start out with oil or butter in the frying pan. If the mushrooms are really wet, or if I had washed them, like chanterelles you can wash, or corals you can wash, but gilt mushrooms or bolides, you don't really want to get the sponge or the gilts wet. Um, then I would just uh, fry them without water, uh, without butter or oil, till the moment where they stick to the pan, and then add my oil. So we call that dry frying. And if there's a lot of moisture, you put that aside, and then you can use that later on for making a sauce. So, and I always love mushrooms with, I think so many of them, you really can nicely, you know, deglaze with white wine and onions. I, I fry on the side. I just like that. Makes the mushrooms go a little further too. And, um, you know, parsley is, is a great spice that doesn't have too much... Uh, it's very popular all over Europe to, to use parsley with mushrooms because it's not as powerful as thyme, but thyme, of course, is great too. And so cream sauce, doesn't matter which mushroom you put in a cream sauce, it's always awesome. Yeah. And um, and but, you were uh, saying too, and just like, like kind of like switching notes real quick, you, you were saying that the best time to be able to typically pick mushrooms when they're growing is when the trees don't need as much of their food, they're like the sugars they're producing on their own. So you're kind of looking like like you were saying, like July, August, September. But you mentioned a little bit about a, a preferred season in the Pacific Northwest extending into October as well because it's a little bit wetter. Um, well, our prime season is usually October in the Pacific Northwest. Now, if you go high up in the mountains, everything happens in the summer and there's often more rain and thunderstorms. But coastal, western BC, western Washington, it's when the rains come. And then it usually takes at least two or three weeks after the first great rain in fall. But we had so many rains this year, this year doesn't apply. This year, mushrooms spin out all the time. Um, but if you travel, you know, east of the Rockies or so, where they have July, August rains, thunderstorms, mushrooms will be out there. So our peak season is October. When you look all the mushroom festivals and mushroom shows, you find, you know, in Victoria and in Vancouver and Seattle and Bellingham and wherever, um, they're all in October. But now we could also have them in early November. I mean, uh, you're lucky you live in Canada. You have climate change. Or should I say we are lucky because uh, we don't have it. Uh, however, <laughs> nature didn't get that memo. It's real. The mushrooms um, fruit much longer now because the frosts come later. And um, so our mushroom season now often here in Seattle was often over uh, end of October, early November. A good frost came and then the mushrooms, most of them give up. And now it often extends into the end of November, into December and uh so it's really the rains are the indicator. Rain, rain means mushrooms. And is there like you know, like do you 
do you look on a certain side of the mountain, you know, like, you know, like maybe a mountain that gets more sun or less sun, you know, like, like, how do you gauge that or like the area? Because like, obviously, when we go into the backcountry, like there's, there's quite a diverse amount of area you can travel. Like, are you looking for like a shadier spot or like something that's exposed a little bit more to the sun or like well, what? There's different mushrooms. Some some just will show up in totally shady area, like the angel wings, which is a little bit like an oyster. It's really like the totally shady on decaying cedars, late stage decay cedar. Now, um, other mushrooms to find, like the bolides, the king bolides, they're happy on the edge of a forest. Um, so this is something you build up through the years through experience and it's it's very different if you're in a dry year you go in all the shady moist areas along creeks lakes rivers wherever there's a little bit of moisture that's the only chance you have to find a mushroom right now if it's a year with abundant rain it doesn't matter but let's say there's a lack of temperature spring mushrooms morels it's all about the soil temperature for the morels to pop so the first morels will happen on the south side. But late in the season, there's no point being out on the south-facing slope because there's no more moisture. you got to be where the moisture is, so north-facing slope. And each week, it moves up, up, up the mountain. You know? So, mushrooms... Um, before I got so hooked mushrooms, I did vegetation studies and, and worked on vegetation donations in eastern Tibet and you know, south slope, north slope, soil conditions and all that. And that's, I mean, so helpful for mushrooms because, uh, you know, they happen, they fruit when the conditions are right. And the conditions, uh, it's always uh, uh, about moisture is the key thing. Temperature, mushrooms can handle really hot if there's enough humidity. If there's no humidity, mushrooms hate the hot. But that's not our issue usually, the heat, right? Yeah. So um, it's all about the moisture, and, and you get an eye for that. And certain mushrooms are, uh, you know, they prefer certain environments. And, and you know, that's, that's where you, uh, you know, when you study up on it, there's so much now. Like when I started out here over 20 years ago, there was one book, you know, The Mushroom, the mushroom Savory. And... Um, Okay, you guys had a different one for uh, uh, up in Canada too, and but there was one picture, you know, and one picture you want to recognize a mushroom by one picture. It's like recognizing a person who happens now to be fifty-five, and you have a picture when they were twenty-eight, and you know, and and the picture was taken the next morning after a wild party or something, <laughs> and then you gotta match it. It's like, well, if there's not some scar across the face how are you gonna do that and but now we have so many images of these mushrooms like you think you have a certain mushroom you put that name in your search engine and then you pull up 20 images and it gotta match or you don't have it and don't be you know don't cut corners you want a total match everything else is stupid and but you have so many images now it is so helpful uh, you know Two decades ago, it was everything only we had in print, and then three quarters were still in black and white. I mean, not helpful. Yeah, a black and white picture of mushrooms like that's not helpful. Like, or just even like like verbiage, like reading, like text, like like that's not uh, 
Like the, I, I'm lost looking at hundreds of pictures to try to identify them sometimes because there's just slight little bit variations that like kind of throw like a lot of the context out the door. That's what makes me question it. But um, I have a question for you though because you've, you've kind of alluded to that you've been to these other countries. Like, where's the most fascinating place on this planet that you've been? You know, to like to harvest or collect mushrooms or just you know from a vegetation standpoint in general. <laughs> So when it comes to edible mushrooms, the Pacific Northwest is one of the most incredible areas in the world. I mean, the amount of chanterelles we have, we have the morels, we have the fire morels in spring, we have the king bolides in suburbia, we have shaggy parasols and birch bolides. On the oldest, we have all the oyster mushrooms. I mean, it's incredible what we have here. And... Um, there's a few things that are missing, like the East Coast has the maitake mushroom, the, um, uh, what's it called, common name, forgot. Um, yeah, well, maitake is the Japanese common name, the hen of the woods, which is oak associated. That's really one thing I miss out here. And California has a couple really tasty amanitas. Um, but... The Pacific Northwest for mushroom hunting is, I think it's in, 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 in the Americas, it's one of the most prolific areas with the most edibles. And because of our maritime climate, you know, the mild winters, we can even 12 months a year, we can find mushrooms here, which, yes, the 12 months are more, uh, uh, more easily uh fulfilled maybe in California, but you got to drive between the Sierras and the coast and do long distances. So this is really amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm very fascinated by not just the edibility of mushrooms, but just uh, the beauty of them and, and also the medicinal aspects and the cultural aspects of, of mushrooms, you know, the how humans relate to it or any other organism for that matter. Um, and yes, the rainforest is just incredible in the diversity. But in the rainforest, a lot of the mushrooms are much smaller. You know, they're these root-associated big mushrooms, like we have all the forests full of the amanitas, the russula, brittle gills, and cordinarius, and corals, and chanterelles, and matsutake, all these <coughs> big, fleshy mushrooms. Um, they are missing in, in, in the Amazon or are only limited to very few areas. And a lot of it is much smaller, but, you know, uh, much more diversity. And, and then all these cordyceps. So I'm hooked on these insect parasitic fungi that are really bizarre, you know, where you have the beauty of an insect corpse and then the fungus growing out of them. Um, it's really, uh, uh, I don't, I can't find that here in the Pacific Northwest. There's very few of them hard to find. And, um, so, you know, it's, it's just, I'm in a very lucky position that I can do it and, and, you know, found a way with organizing my mushroom tours, mushrooming, that I turned that into a business, taking people to exotic places and, and like Bhutan or Colombia right now I do each year where I have good friends I work with. And then, you know, we're not just looking at mushrooms, but that's a big part of it. And otherwise, you know, we're experiencing the countries, but we come from that one angle uh, that we also take a lot of time in the woods, go to different ecosystems, you know, different altitudes, different uh, forest types, 
And like in Bhutan, what's so cool is everybody in Bhutan, rural people, they all collect mushrooms. So we, we connect with local people. We take them in the woods too. They take us in their woods. And so we really get an in into a local culture by sharing the love for mushrooms. And um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, this is, you're very lucky to be in the Pacific Northwest for mushrooms and, and you know, uh, there's there's no need to go anywhere else for for mushrooms and that's okay if you I mean I grew up loving traveling you know that's why I studied geography physical geography ecology environment and, and then I actually worked many years on environmental uh, issues in the Himalayas and in Tibet and so that's why I have that focus and then someday um, there I discovered cordyceps yurtsugumbu which is the insect parasiting mushroom where one pound uh, costs the, the natural product one pound if it's crumbles four thousand dollars but if it's best quality twenty thirty thousand dollars so wow. it's, it's crazy and that fuels the tibetan rural economy in tibet and i've been working on that for decades and so but then i looked for these cordyceps in the rainforest and that's how i started out uh, going to south america and there's uh, there is no economic value for the cordyceps there yet, but there is um, diversity. And so that's really one of my things. And now I'm working on, on edible mushroom projects in, in Bhutan and Suriname, South America. And because, you know, the, the nutritional benefits, it's such a great alternative to meat. And, um, you know, the, the carbon footprint of, of mushrooms it's just so much smarter for us to eat mushrooms than me. And the health benefits are incredible too. And, you know, I don't say people have to give up meat, but mushrooms is a real awesome alternative. And, and you can get all the protein you need and lots of vitamins and minerals out of mushrooms. And, um, you know, which just grow every wood out there every biomass is broken down by a mushroom anyways. So if you grow edible mushrooms on these walks and branches and whatever leaves, you know, we get food right out of it. And and so it's really something as a society, we gotta, we, we gotta be, we, we gotta rely much more on mushrooms. We'll really lower our footprint, carbon footprint, and also improve our health. There's so many studies that show eating mushrooms like two, three, four times a week will improve your mental capacity, memory increase, and, and you know, uh, I mean, it's endless. There's so much uh, out of it. I produced with a friend, with uh, Robert Rogers, who's Canadian. And as a Canadian, you should get it from Robert Rogers' webpage. Um, a little fold-out, you know, just 10 bucks. Um, medicinal mushrooms of North America, um, over 30, 33 species with instruction how you can make your own little extracts, teas, water, alcohol extractions, and so on. Very helpful and really nice introduction to medicinal mushrooms. And then I also should advertise here my edible mushrooms of the Pacific Northwest you already had mentioned. Um, I didn't show these things if somebody watches the video. Yeah. Here we go. And um, that's, uh, you know, has all the good edibles. And and I was so funny, if the only one who did that with a classification, easy ID, moderate or difficult ID. 
which makes a big difference because if you know it's an easy ID and you put your diligence into it, you can trust it, you know. If it says difficult ID, no, you gotta have some person help you, you know, somebody who already has the knowledge or maybe online for certain stuff that you really get help and then uh, you, you could make that step. But, you know, there's uh, all kinds of good books. Each year we have more books and my, I, I have to honestly say, my little field guides here, they just cover the best stuff. And you go out in the woods and the wood is full of stuff you wouldn't find in a, in, in a little thing like that. So, but you never have a book where you have everything in there. That's not happening yet. And I think your field guides are incredibly so. Like, like I have both of them. They're in my pack, and that's essentially why I reached out to you because they, they make it like I, I love how they're they're laminated. They're they're easy to read. You know, again, like there's the identifiers of like you know like how um, easy they are to identify. Like like how they taste. Like you have a really good marking system to be able to like understand. You know, like like if it's palatable. You know, if it's easy to identify. Like all those kind of things. And um, yeah, like I find like those guys are like just an invaluable resource because especially being in the pacific northwest like a lot of the times when i yeah i'm out there like foraging for these mushrooms like you know it is damp conditions or it's raining so you know even to have something like that you where you went and you laminated like that like like little things like that made it extremely helpful having it yeah i mean it's it's uh i think it's sold by now 15 or twenty thousand times and something i never would have thought and it wasn't my idea it was harbor publishing up in madeira bc with their idea and um, I'm, I'm very grateful. And then I even, you know, I, uh, I, I did an Amazon one too and now the medicinal one. And um, I might do more in this format because it is just, it's easy to reach people. You know, it's, it's not uh, profound science. But at this point where we are here culturally about mushrooms, it's really about opening people up to it and, and showing that you're not gambling with your life by trying to find chanterelles you know it's 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 idiot proof you know yes you gotta look a little bit smell them apricot odor you know rubbery consistency the folds the gills run down on the stem you know i mean you know it's 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 learnable and and it it's so much joy to your life and healthy too you know and um, free like this is the thing you know like when you go into the forest not like are you building a better connection with like yourself you know with nature you're unplugging from these environments but like the food that you get to bring back home it's free you know like it's not costing you anything no and and, and i mean especially now since we have this uh research out of uh japan you know the shinrin yoku the forest bath or healing yeah. that you go out in the woods and your antibody count antibody count goes up you know just our immune system being out in the woods really benefits from that already three hours make a difference yeah. so I mean we come out of the woods and, and going back into the woods it's such a soothing healing experience and um, that's you know at home I always gotta do something you know gotta not waste my time produce this that and out in the woods I just can be basically a kid again you know and yeah. and, and and just enjoy and, and curious and finding things finding treasures you know I mean that's such a big part of me um, reliving Easter Sunday when I was five years old or something like that you know yeah. just the joy of being out there finding things and and then of course then you can even eat it you know and it's so tasty. Yeah. Um, 
and then healthy. So why don't you why don't you spend this uh, this next few minutes and like you know shout out like like your website and all the the ways that everybody can get a hold of you and, and find this information and you know like detail you know like the the um, the information packets you know like your field guides you know like what you have on on Amazon and you know like I said like find like every way for people to be able to get in contact with you and just kind of like yeah. shout out your services and like everything that you offer and everything um, that makes mushrooming. Daniel. Yeah. So find, go to mushrooming with OA. We roam for mushrooms. Go to mushrooming.com and there you can buy um, all my field guides and uh, mushroom knives. And then also you can see where I give talks, where I teach my international travels I'm offering. I have a mailing list, which I only do like three or four mailings a year. Um, so I'm not going to terrorizing every, anybody. Um, send me an email there's a contact page and then I'll put you on my mailing list and if you don't want to be on that anymore uh, you can unsubscribe very easily um, then I should do plugs so there's all kinds um, if you especially have list, listeners in BC find your local mycological society Victoria Vancouver um, there used to be one in Mission I think they they're not operating right now anymore. There's mushroom festivals. There's one coming up. The next one I know is in Sycamus, BC. So um, this is the last weekend of September. I was supposed to be there, but I can't make it this year. I think it's uh, 28, 29, 30th or so. Uh, great place. Great uh, mushroom people there. Um, organizer Deb and then... Um, yeah, I mean, just cool people will take you out in the woods, show you what's edible, what's poisonous, how to identify. And then there's all kinds. I think Manning State Park, the Vancouver Mycological Society always has an outing there. And, uh, you know, it's really connect to people who already do mushroom hunting. And then that's how you learn. And yes, you can't just steal other people's mushroom spots. So you've got to be skillful and uh, uh, maybe bring something to the play too but joining the mushroom clubs is really I mean like 20 or 30 bucks a year and, and you learn so much and it's pretty cool people I mean mushroom people um, you know like my mushrooming tours it's really I talk to other people who do tourism and you know they get annoyed by people coming along and there's always a few in a group and it's like that's not my experience everybody who comes along for mushrooming it's just I don't know what it is but mushroom hunters you know they know they find treasures in the dirt and that already um, you know I don't know yeah it's 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 really a great community yeah awesome well, I know that, uh, you know, we both have some, some commitments, so I'm just going to wrap it up there. And I just, I really want to thank you, Dan, for coming in. Like, this is all invaluable information. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be able to sit down and, and educate us, you know, on, on all these topics. Because, you know, like, there, there's so many lost arts, you know, in this world now. And I, th- I think one of them, you know, that's not necessarily like a lost art, but it, it's, it's something we need to reconnect with, you know, like it's something that like, you know, like, like mushrooms have like an incredible, invaluable resource to like our planet. Like, you know, like whether you said like they're, you know, like medicinal, you know, like whether, you know, increased cognitive function, you know, like I take lion's mane myself every single day. Like I actually really notice a difference when I miss taking it or if I don't have it available to me. Yeah. You know, like, and, and like I try to eat mushrooms regularly and I try to talk about them because, you know, like the, the one part that I really want to break down is the the stigma behind it you know like it's just like whenever you talk about mushrooms people 
people automatically think that you just want to get high and it's like well i'm not i'm not saying that like you know i'd be adverse to you know trying like some of those like mushroom sewer not that i haven't in the past or healing experience and we're gonna have it as a mainstream drug five or ten years down the road there's no way around it because it actually healing happens and yeah but it's 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 just really it's so much color and joy to your life having mushrooms and if you already go out in the woods it's just a whole new layer of enjoyment it really opens your eyes and it opens your heart too you know because there's so much joy and 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 to to be had with it and and you know just finding things like that it's 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 moments of joy you know we need more of that in life and it's simple things you know it doesn't need to be a new car we get excited about it we find a mushroom in the forest and be happy yeah so okay that's um thanks for having me along and i gotta move on thank you daniel and good luck and yeah stay in touch yeah awesome thank you daniel have yourself a wonderful day